you are listening to Pharmacy IT and Me, your informatics pharmacist podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Pharmacy IT and Me. And as with every episode, we start this one saying that the audience is uh, everyone. Today, we're going to be having a very special guest, uh, one of the pharmacists that I've been wanting to have on the podcast for a while, and we've been friends for a while, but actually never officially interviewed you on the podcast, uh, is uh, Dr. Timothy Oxt. How are you doing today? Uh, not too bad. You know, I'm out here just thinking about like all the stuff that's going on in the world and pleasantly surprised by all the new technology and such, and, you know, trying to keep my head above water as I have to balance between academic work, clinical work, and all this digital health stuff that people ask me about. It's fun. <laughs> yeah, you do a lot of stuff. And for those of the listeners who don't know, uh, Timothy Angst, uh, his his handle online is the Digital Apothecary. Uh, so you might have heard that Dr. Angst actually did uh, do a lot of different speaking events about digital health. So really excited today to kind of like delve into, you know, digital health and how you got started in it. And um you know, what you currently do and what you think pharmacists should know about it. Just to get started, uh, for those of the listeners who don't know who you are yet, uh, can you give a little brief uh, intro? Yeah, sure. So, you know, my name is Timothy I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice. I graduated back from in 2011 at Wilkes University in Scranton, Pennsylvania, which is that place where people like that one television show I've never watched, apparently, but I should one day. Um, and then I went on to do a PGY-1 residency, uh, pharmacy practice at St. Luke's University Hospital in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, just north of Philadelphia. And then I went and did a clinical geriatric fellowship up at MCPHS, where I stayed on as a um, professor. And I clinically have done outpatient ambulatory cardiology and focus on heart failure management care uh, at UMass. I did that for about five to six years. And then I gravitated over into working in home health care, which is an area that I was always focused upon. So that's like the, the clinical, academic, you know, not really interesting stuff as far as I'm concerned based on what else I do. So the background is I um, got involved in mobile health back in 2011, 2010. Um, I had been, you know, this is when I got access to smartphone and such. I was behind the ball just because of cost, to be honest. Uh, from 2006 to 2010, that 2010 was when I actually could afford um, getting a smartphone and I got an iPad. And I, during my clinical uh, rounds, I was actually instead of using um, computer on wheels or workstation on wheels, I was using my iPad to process orders. And a lot of people were like, well, how are you doing this? And they've never seen that before. And I was doing a lot faster order entry compared to other clinical pharmacists and staff pharmacists that were doing satellites and doing walk arounds in the hospital. And what ended up happening was I started being like, well, are there apps out there? Are there other stuff that we can use to, you know, besides this order entry, like what else could I do? So I started like finding apps for like patient education and like videos. And I was starting to play stuff at the bedside doing post-discharge counseling and such. And I saw a huge opportunity for that, but I was like, what makes a good app? What makes me, wh- like, why would I recommend this to another provider? And that's actually started becoming a question within the hospital. It's like, people see me do this stuff. Like, well, what apps are you using? Like, how did you figure this out? And I was like, okay. And then I found a group, um, it was uh, Satish Mejra and Iltafat Hussein that had founded iMedical Apps. And I came to them and said, I'd like to write for you guys from a pharmacy perspective, because you guys are in from a medical perspective. And they're like, sure, we'll take you. So I actually got slammed to do patient-focused apps and pharmacy-related apps. And over that time of period, I have probably reviewed anywhere between maybe 3,000 plus apps out there. Um, and... It was daunting. It was just daunting, like just being like seeing stuff drop into medical and health app um, 
columns within the old app store at the time. And this is back in the era where, you know, Apple was out there, you know, proclaiming how many apps were on the app store. And when once they hit a billion, they stopped that. And they actually stopped showing how many apps were on the app store. Unless you buy a third party software, you don't really know how many apps are actually out there. IQVIA has been quoted saying it's 300,000 plus uh, health related apps on the market this current time. It depends how you want to break down those numbers. But Apple is probably the only one that truly knows at this current time. Any of it, we were like reviewing apps, we were trying to set up standards and such. We were trying to figure out what makes a good app, what makes a bad app. Um, we actually got started being pulled into different organizations. We started being asked to, you know, write guidelines, write some best practices. I know there's some individuals in an organization that were talking that they've been hit up by the FDA and related. So we put a lot of work into this. And I reached a point, though, where I was moving more into my academic role and I couldn't support being an editor and doing that so much work. And I'd step back and then I started focusing on, well, Let's focus on the pharmacist audience. I've been really focused on like the healthcare physician audience, to be quite honest, uh, reviewing like, drug-related information apps for them. Um, and I hopped back over to the pharmacy and started writing for Pharmacy Times about like different digital health news and such that was coming out to place. And this is when it transferred from mobile health to digital health. This is when I was like being asked about devices, wearables, stuff like that. And around the time, I was like, you know, I probably should set up a blog, just you know, put my own thoughts about this stuff together. And what's ironic is uh, I call myself the digital apothecary. And my uh, initials are TDA, but I didn't do that on purpose. Someone else pointed out actually words afterwards. They're like, did you know that you chose your initials as your your blog name? And I was like, you know what? I'm going to pretend I did that, but I'm going to confess now I that was not intentional. <laughs> it's just subconscious, right? That's what my wife says. She's like, yeah, you probably just did and you just didn't realize it. I was like, yeah, we'll, we'll go with that. So, you know, I started calling stuff like the digital apothecary. I started wearing different stuff like that. And it was actually really tough because I will be honest, I have been told by other academic pharmacists over the years um, to actually stop doing this work, that they thought that the whole digital health movement and health movement was meaningless and I should concentrate more on doing traditional pharmacy related activities. So, you know, I'm probably a little bit bullheaded because of that. And I kept up with the work and started, you know, really running about all this stuff. And, you know, I've been getting hits about it. People ask me, like, you know, what's good apps? What's like good wearable devices? Start being pulled different things. But it really hadn't matured. And, you know, then the pandemic hits and in the past three years, people have been hitting me up because they started looking at what's digital health, what's a digital therapeutics, what's a digital medicine. And definitely for those that have been in the pharmacy space, my name pops up the most. I mean, Brent Fox, Kevin Clausen, you guys over at PHIA, you know, you have some stuff that pops up as well. But like my whole focus point has been digital health and from the stuff that I had basically been broadcasting for about, you know, at that point, about eight plus years. Um, that's where they were finding my work. And then they start reaching out wanting to ask me more. So now I basically do a lot of advisor roles for different companies and groups. I've been doing that for years, but it's been really pulling from that to now do more formal working with pharmaceutical organizations such as like APHA, uh, AACP for the Audience of American Association of Colleges of Pharmacy. We're trying to figure out educational standards around technology and digital health in particular that future pharmacy students should consider. Um, I work with FIPON. Uh, I think it's International Federation of Pharmaceutical Care or Pharmaceutical, um, and been working with them on that. Work for the Digital Therapeutics Alliance in terms of helping out with the rollout of digital health and digital therapeutics worldwide. I've done work with the Digital Medicine Society. I've done work for AMCP around payer schemes for different digital health services and product. And most of this is just because they're pulling from my experiences, my wealth of knowledge I have for seeing things work and not work over the past decade. Um, many people were a bit lucky, like digital just came out of left field and like, no, like, you know, we had the e-health movement back in the late 90s. We had a huge M-health movement in the early 2000s and then digital health is just your new 
phrase that's being passed around, but the emphasis and the, and the ideas and concepts are still there as they always were. So that's my long rant, I guess you could say, about just my overall history condensed down over the past decade. <laughs> yeah, so I do have a lot of detailed questions, but more of a general question is, how do you have the time to do all of this? Um, you know what? It's I think it helps if you're passionate about your hobbies. Um, the digital apothecary has always been a hobby for me. At the end of the day, it's something that I love. I find huge joy out of actually learning about the stuff and trying to disseminate that knowledge. So whereas other people probably engage on other things in their daily lives that the, you know, they find that joy in, like, this is just one of those. So um, I'm one of those people, like, uh, give examples, like, as an academic, I get weighed in on service and teaching and scholarship. What I've done is I take the stuff that I loved and roped it into that. So I can, you know, do presentations and talk about, like, you know, papers and everything that I'm trying to disseminate on different levels. And, you know, that's my academic work, too. So I try to make this identity all around that kind of thing. And I think as long as I find it fun, I'll keep doing it. In terms of time, um, you know, back in the uh, mid 2010s, definitely was probably the height of me just like putting out stuff. Uh, and then I had kids and then the kids have like destroyed <laughs> the time that I used to have, to be quite honest. Um, so now I, I'm very much more strategic in terms of like what I will engage upon and do, um, which I think yeah, as my kids get over, they'll have that time back. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got a little one now. I mean, like, you, yeah, it's constantly a battle, right? Trying to be like being a father, being a whatever we're getting paid to do, being a husband and in trying to find the value in things that make us who we are and not abandoning certain things. I think it's just like that's the issues. Is time to me is a one commodity like you cannot bank. You can the whole goal of people wanting to have money is basically so they can buy time back, right? I'm gonna pay for Uber Eats to deliver my food so I don't have to go out that door. I'm gonna pay for someone to go shop for me. I'm going to pay for someone to handle all these extraneous things so I can have the time. The more time I have, the richer I am with the financial backing that, you know, ensure that time is there for me. Um, and and I, I, make, I make that statement because that's actually why I like digital health, because it is about that time management. Instead of someone having to spend time taking out of their day to call off work, to have to schedule something and then drive somewhere and then pay for parking and wait for, you know, 30 minutes in office to be seen for like 20 minutes and go somewhere else to get testing, and then go after somewhere else to get new medications. They've lost all the time that day uh, to take care of themselves. And I think digital health for me is that, that digitalization of that care. Like, why can't we, to a certain um, status, get that time back for patients so that they can continue to work? They just take some time out for telehealth visits. So they can have a test delivered at home, and they can take it, and they can medications delivered to them at the end of the day. They, they had that time for themselves because all that time lost just as up being a burden, I feel. And that's kind of like time is like one of my theoretical constructs I think about at the end of the day that has a lot of practical effects on overall health, I think, for people. And when people are talking about social determinants of health, they even allude to like that time loss for many people that have to work multiple jobs and all the burden associated with it because they are not time rich at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. Going back, you know, relating to the actual digital health and mobile health, I wanted to actually ask you because you've, you've been talking about, you know, all your experiences through at first, mHealth before you got into digital health. In the mobile app space, when you were looking at that, what was the biggest challenge you saw that was kind of like the same challenge that many apps had? Gotcha. So here's, a, here's the biggest issue is there's no regulation. So you can do whatever you want. And for a time period, Apple will like, turn a blind eye. Like there were apps out there that, you know, they would say, oh, hold your phone up, it'll shine a blue light and it would cure your acne. Like it was something like $2 a pop and like the developer had sold like, I think 30,000s 
uh, the copies on the App Store. So, you know, be, they were probably making about 40000 at the end of the day after cost split with Apple. What do you think about, like, oh, man, this is like a blue flashlight that you saw in your face. And, you know, Apple wasn't saying you can't do that. Um, it was the Federal Trade Commission that actually came after them. It was the FTC. It was not the FDA. Oh, wow. Um, and this is the thing, like, this is an era where you had, I think, I think this is, I'll give you, this is actually really very simple. This was, um, we had an app that we were looking at and it was supposed to do like AR. This is back in like 2013. Keep this in mind. Like, um, it was supposed to like use AR technology. You shine the camera on, um, a mole and it would tell you based on the size and everything else, whether or not it could be like skin cancer, um, which is cool, you know, in, in concept, like in theory, that's cool. Um, nowadays, you know, the question would come up, like, you know, what, you know, is it using some kind of, you know, using augmented intelligence or some kind of a neural network to actually put this all together for multiple pictures that have been recorded about that. But at the time, what it was, was a, it was someone that was non-medical, was just a tech guy. He went to a medical school and he just looked at the pictures in textbooks about skin cancer and just copied those images to help build his design. Wow, this sounds familiar. I feel like I've seen people from like the technology side, just like asking these kind of questions to not even like to help care professionals but a healthcare subreddit like i've seen those kind of posts where that they, they're trying to build an app based on that and it's just like that rudimentary um question of like not you know not understanding what really goes into a, a healthcare diagnosis yeah and i mean like i've seen other health related ones that were created for you know health professionals and one that got me was i was looking at uh, pain you know, basically analgesic interchangeable for like uh, opioids and you know, I, I was going through this and looking at this and like the calculations don't add up. Like the morphine equivalency doesn't equal this much fentanyl. And like they even had a methadone calculator in there, which I don't really see people ever trying to engage upon. And, you know, back in my hunting, like, you know, are people downloading this? Is like a new medical student, or medical resident out there like downloading this possibly? Or even, you know, someone saying, oh, this will help me and like using it for patient care. Like that was the scary stuff that we were coming across. And that was why we saw our value in terms of like trying to evaluate this stuff was like, you know, call out the BS at the end of the day get rid of this stuff but you know um there's still you know when we talk about like, you know medication side effects you know there's fares out there that you can record uh things that do occur but there's nothing for an app still like if you find a sketchy app if you find a sketchy kind of technology to a certain point like who are you gonna go to is it gonna be the fda or you're gonna go to the ftc you're gonna go to something else like this is this is the barrier i think in like this whole digitalization of care and these different resources out there like there's really no um, I still consider the Wild West at the end of the day until we and we have a lot of snake oil. We're still pounding now through. And as you mentioned, like, you know, the Reddit forums, I still see the same stuff that's been asked for a decade. Except, you know, now we have new interesting tools. We have new different stuff. Does it make it better, though? Does it make it more powerful? The camera got better. You know, we have different um, ways that we can do this. But is it is, is that going to make it? Is that actually going to pr produce a, a product that can actually do it at the end of the day? And I think that's the biggest question I face. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I I agree with that. Like, I, I see all these like conversations happening of like, you know, not 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 academic conversations, but like, like you said, on subreddit and subreddits. And it's, it's kind of funny to read and kind of like be like, I can't believe someone's trying to develop something uh, based on this question that they're asking uh, other people on Reddit. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but, um, you know, on the flip side of things, like, you know, when you're looking at all these apps, uh, what was uh, I'm just curious, like for you, like what when you've reviewed it, what was the most uh, creative use of an app that you've seen that um, had a lot of promise? Oh, man, that's that's tough because um, I've seen so many apps over the years that I was like, this is kind of cool. Like I saw like some apps being developed around just like educational things, like how to do different stuff. I, there was one app that I actually liked was um, from Eli Lilly and it was for glucagon. So 
I thought this was really innovative. So imagine if you all, you know, you, like you have to do, you know, Google on emergency use. So you have to open up the uh, emergency kit. You have to take the um, the uh, vial. You have to pop off the lid. You have to swab it. Then you have to inject the fluids in there, shake it up and such. So you could watch a video doing that, right? But what they had created was an app that actually walked you through and you had to interact. So you had like slide to like wash to like to like you had to like flick your finger to flip off the cap. You had to slide your finger to like wash it. You had to push down the injective syringe and then you had to shake the foam and the foam actually had to shake pretty hard to make it actually shake up and they would tell you if you're doing a good job and i was like this is really interesting from a patient educational standpoint what's what else is available there um some other ones i had seen that i really like was you know we talk about you know hardware readmission rates and such like that and there was a movement at a certain point where you almost like it was like <laughs> you, you had tamagotchis for like diabetes and like heart failure and you had to take care of these things that had this condition and you know ergo if you the better you take care of them and do these certain things, then the pet would live, which was supposed to be you. So like there was um people were trying to sh- like you know hard for your discharge like you had like a day to like live this pet that had this problem you know oh how, what can he eat oh don't feed it too much salt you're gonna kill it oh it can't drink that much you're gonna kill it oh you have to remember give its medications uh, did you weigh it yet uh, oh it weighed this much what should you do oh you didn't call the doctor okay now it's dead you know it's like reaffirming to the user like okay these are like habits I have to form. And just as I would take care of this little virtual pet, I now have to take care of myself. Oh my gosh, that's that's pretty cool. That's really that's really unique. That actually reminds me of a um, uh, a joke someone was, I saw somewhere that the Fitbit is basically a Tamagotchi, but the pet is actually you. <laughs> yep. And but but like even like so that, let's if we take a step back, like you know that conversation was that the, we were making those designs a decade ago, right now, and now you're seeing people come back and say you're hearing that people say a digital twin. Like, can you have a digital twin out there that you can predict like all the health stuff and what you can do to actually improve them? And just like again, like we're visiting, we're revisiting the same kind of concepts, just the technology has changed and kind of the the uh, premise uh, has changed a little bit too. But it's still like the the underlying issue of what you're trying to do is solve for, you know, your own issues by kind of using a digital footprint and a digital version of yourself is now there. So, oh, I can look at a digital twin myself. If I keep doing X, I'm going to see it. I'm going to like, you know, develop X, Y, Z conditions in the future. So at my current stat- status, what do I need to actually reduce those issues? Or what can we do? It comes into being. You, you talked about, you know, moving into digital health and digital health. You did mention this like a while, while West. And I wanted to ask you that term digital health. It's so non-specific like how mm. yeah how does that get defined and how how do you see it break down to different things you know like and health is part of it digital therapeutics is part of it but um are there like i know some of the societies have those breakdown definitions so can you kind of describe a little bit about like how digital health kind of breaks down yeah i mean like the fda you know has a uh, center for digital health excellence that they launched in the past two years they don't have a definition of digital health on there fda had never had a definition uh, because they don't know what it is. Um, and then you have digital therapies, which has kind of one digital medicine, kind of has like broad things. And HIMS, I think, has a digital health definition toolkit that's like 20 pages long. So no one n- really knows what digital health is. And I, I, this frustrates people. And it frustrates no one else like academics who want a firm definition at the end of the day. Like I make my colleagues go insane. I know that. And so I'm going to give you my my personal thoughts. So take it for what it is. I regard digital health currently as the digitalization of current health modalities, um, moving 
towards a model away from intermittent care towards continuous care based on the availability of patient data that has not been there before. So two things, I mean, several things with this then. One is digitalization of services. Like, okay, so telehealth is just a digitalization service, but there's a level there that you can't really accomplish very well, depending on acuity of disease. Like no one's going to do like telehealth diagnostics for cancer right now because the technology isn't there. You can do it for like, you know, UTIs, infections to a certain level. You can do it for um, different, maybe chronic conditions that you want to talk about and such. And that's easy. So there's a digitalization. It's like, okay, instead of in person, now it's remote, but we could get better, right? So how do we move towards just in time, like testing? What if we add on test kits that you can have mailed to you? And instead of going to another company, get that blood draw and everything else, you can just do it at home some way or another. Um, what if we move to a point where we have remote patient monitoring? So instead of like doing vitals in the office, we can now do them in your own home. And so it's like, again, but still doing the same tests, like it's still digitalization. So instead of doing a blood test, uh, you know, blood test in a center, you're doing blood tests at home. You're moving from doing a blood pressure analysis towards home. So it's still intermittent care. It's still data that's self-collected. You have to take a lot of ownership over it and it comes back and it's a one-time measurement. So we're still trying to figure out that whole digitalization level. We're not there yet. I think we'll be there probably by 2025. Biggest issue is going to be payers and evidence for certain of these conditions that works out. I think the payers are going to come on because, well, now we don't have to pay for a lot of the overhead charges for a lot of these type of works that were done in person. So if a patient takes their own blood pressure, um, do you have to pay for someone else doing it? Can we pay less for that remote patient monitoring? Is it a better CPT code now that's associated with it? So that's one hand. So first we have to figure out how to digitalize a lot of this stuff. And there's going to be things that we don't know how to digitalize. And this is where digital medicines opens up because digital medicine's like, well, how do we take like a, you know, 60 second walk test and use your Apple watch, which has like a gyroscope and everything in there that can actually sense how well you're walking. But then, you know, not even that, like, why do we care about 60 seconds? Why not all day? And this is where you open up a new can of worms because clinically, I don't think totally we're we've ever been trained around this is continuous data. I mean, like in the hospital, like the ICU, critical care stuff, yeah, you have people constantly hooked up to telemetry and other things like that. But like outpatient, like I don't think about people's blood pressure all the time. I don't think about someone's blood pressure 24 hours. I mean, yeah, there's kits and like devices you can put on, but we only do that for diagnostics in certain conditions. We don't do it all the time for the whole population. We're going there. We're going to a point where we have continuous data. And I think it changes the language around how we treat certain conditions. Um, I look at diabetes and I think about CGM or continuous glucose monitoring. We're moving away from self-monitoring of blood glucose towards CGM. And CGM, because you have all the data, now opens up a new way of measuring outcomes. Now we're talking about TIR, time and range. Because we have all those data points, then we're recognizing that if you're in a certain percentage of TIR, you have better outcomes associated. So do we move away from random thinking out pre or postprandial like measurements of blood glucose towards just time and range? Um how does it deal with A1C? How does it deal with other things? Like, what does that all mean at the end of the day? So this is a second level is digitalization moving from intermittent data that we've been having towards new data sets that we have to reconsider what it means clinically at the end of the day. And then the final part is when you see hear about digital therapies, which is, can we use treatments that are just very digitally focused? And we're right now there's a focus on cognitive behavioral therapy for a lot of this stuff, but I think it, you know, picks up more. Why do I have to think about, you know, again, I'm coming back to this whole like time, um, and I think like the patient center at home is the new way of where we engage care and not going to the clinic. So like if you have like a, a substance use disorder or a sleep problem, why do you have to go 
drive somewhere to talk to a therapist about it and engage in CBT. Again, you lose all the time associated with it. Why can't you do, just do CBT at home? So there's a telehealth you know, proposal right there. But then let's move beyond it. Like, why can't we do it through an app? Why can't it not be self-guided? Does it have to be done by a human? And this is where we start getting into like the role of VR, different things like that for can this technology actually deliver treatment, not a non-pharmaceutical treatment for a condition. Obviously, there's certain conditions that you just don't do. You're not going to be cancer with a piece of software at the end of the day. Um, you know, we can use software to help identify patients with cancer, but at the end of the day, treatment is going to be delivered through some other means. But, you know, some conditions may be software by itself with a device or with a medication may be able to deliver treatment better than having that software just, I mean, having just a medication by itself at the end of the day. And so that's like the curve of my outlook on digital health, what it means and where it's going. So I know that's a long explanation, but like that, that's the best way I look at this current time is we're fr currently focused on the digital digitalization of care, moving towards understanding better how to use data to surround how to think about conditions and moving to part where we can then identify, do we need a human touch point? Do we need a software guide touch point? How do we scale health around continuous data? And when do we intervene? And I think that's going to be the magic that happens, at least in the next decade. This is going to be a 2030s ongoing project. Yeah, I don't know if you've um, you've seen this uh, happen before, but I'm going to speak from my own personal experiences, like, you know, just the basic like heart rate monitoring with my Fitbit, right? Like, and I have health anxiety. So now that I know all that information about my heart rate throughout the day, I actually get anxious seeing like, oh my gosh, you know, it increased during this period. What happened here? Like, is this going to be an issue for me? I get more anxious, my heart rate increases more. And I don't know how all of that's being worked into the whole like continuous monitoring of like values and patients own access to their own data and then feeling that anxiety from not understanding it or, you know, just jumping to conclusions without fully understanding the big picture, you know? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head because the technology is there, but the understanding and use of the technology is not. Um, we are still very much in digital health and digitalization care focused on a consumer being the person that has to figure this stuff out. Um, clinicians, I don't think, have really figured out how to bring this on. It, it was where you heard the whole spectra of like, oh, man, so you're going to have Apple Watch. You can diagnose until someone they have the atrial fibrillation, right? You know, like, no, now we have people showing up at the ER thinking like they have AFib. They may or may not, for all I know. I mean, but as technology gets better, the accuracy of it will get better. Um, we've just opened the Pandora's box of the issue. And to your question about, you know, how do we handle it? I think that's that's actually where we want to go. So right now you have the availability, you can see the data, but it's a mess. We don't know actually how to crunch that data down. I would expect over time, and again, this is, this is you're the guinea pig right now, to be quite honest. You're, you're using it prior, you're surrendering your data up so that other people can figure this out. But hopefully by the end of the decade, you come back in that heart rate is given to you in a means and present the data that then you can use to actually say, oh, this is what the interpretation means. It's not like, oh, here's a number, go look it up. Or here's a number, like, and you have clinical knowledge, like, oh, it's high, that's not good. But here's a number, and because of XYZ is going on, this is not a bad thing for you. Does that make sense? So like, it should, it will get to the point where you get to where you're going to have numbers going on and can tell you you're in a situation that is, you know, causing maybe you to feel anxious. This number is, you know, fine. But here is some solutions that can do this. And that's one option. It could tell you solutions, or this is going to be where we go even further with technology from this passive monitoring. You may get suggestions through other apps, other devices, other things trying to help you reduce the anxiety level. 
and there's different things that could do this. Like, what if you were in a social situation or you're driving, you feel anxious and it, you know, it knows it. And like your music profile just changes to a playlist that knows it makes you more comfortable. What if it says, hey, would you like to chat to a friend or encourage someone else to reach out to talk to you? Like, hey, you know, Tony's bored right now. Talk to Tony. Maybe TV, maybe something else that you find enjoyable. But all this stuff will be passive in the background. You won't even know that's going on because it understands that you, with an elevated point of your heart rate, or experience something that you do not like, it will seek to resolve it on its own without even influencing or telling you that it's going on. And that, I think, is where we're moving towards overall in healthcare by and large. Is that scary or not? I, you know, I'm open for that conversation because I think it's going to be something that will happen very far in the future. But I think that something's going to happen to us at some point. That's just going to be the natural evolution of all this stuff. Yeah, it does kind of sound scary, to be honest. But I mean, if the outcome is good, you know, like, you know, the person's going to be healthier because of it, then who knows, maybe there's like that, that, um, that point where that level of scary versus that level of benefit you can actually meet in the middle, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, is that utopian or dystopian? I, I come back to like technology with that, you know, you know, everyone likes to talk about, like, you know, 1984, but then, you know, we have old brave, you know, brave new world where, you know, so much just dropped on people all the time to make them feel good, right? So instead of maybe like, you know, a medication doing it, like, can your environment do that? We know the environment is very big for healthcare. And, you know, is this a public health kind of thing that comes into do the payers look at this and say hey you know what if you're feeling less anxious that will reduce your risk of developing any psychological problems downstream let's engage with that because then i don't have to pay for that money in the future i don't have to pay for a therapist who can just nip in the bud now right if i can stop you from developing diabetes or heart problems i'm gonna do it because it's gonna be cheaper for your care and for us in the long term and I think that's going to be the balance is, you know, rugged individualism at the end of the day. That, you know, we want to tell people they can take care of their own health. But my God, look at the past two years and see what people have done. They're out there eating horse paste. So, you know, does that turn into a point where are we going to allow ourselves to have this kind of stuff operating in the background? I would argue this. We already have a generation growing up that knows that they're guided by an algorithm. They know that social media, you know, whether you want TikTok or anything else, is algorithm generated and leads them down different paths. You know, you and me are parents. Like, what the hell do you do, Tony, when your daughter and like, you know, my kids are like older and like, we know that they're getting guided by different things that are feeding off their data to encourage them to engage in consumerism or different activities, right? That's not even talking about health, but we're seeing a rise of people's anxiety and different things because of this right now. You know, does someone crack down on it? Do parents just say like, you know, back in the nineties, like, don't talk to anyone on the internet, you know, while we're out in like chat rooms going, you know, ASL and talking about different things, you know? So like, this is where things get really weird. I think it has to be a conversation. Is is this something that health insurance and payers get involved with? Is this something that society cracks down on at the end of the day? Is this something that's guided? Do health professionals give a good look outlook on it? This is all the sci-fi stuff. And the sci-fi is what really makes me very passionate and very interested in it. Because I really want to know, where do we go at the end of the day? Yeah, I I have just, it's not even going to be that far in the future, I think. Like, these things are just uh, exponentially, you know, um, advancing. And then it just introduces new issues we didn't even think about. And then, then we have to deal with them too. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, you've been talking about more on the general digital health side because that's what I asked. But earlier, uh, before we talked about this, you did mention that you're more focused on, I guess, what's called pharmacy-focused digital health. I wanted to ask you, what did you mean by that? Yeah, so like which parts of digital health influence pharmacy? So like if we go with my first step is like, you know, digitalization and care, like, you know, we're going to get to the point where within pharmacy services, you have to make a quick thing like 
I do not believe pharmacy and pharmacists are synonymous agents at this current time. The the business of pharmacy and a pharmacist as a profession or as an identity are going to diverge at a certain level. And the pharmacy as an operations, you know, engaging digital health services basically digitalizes, you know, what does it do, which is, you know, dispensing medications. And I would probably make an argument probably by the end of the decade, we'll see a movement for tech, check tech, or we'll see a movement for technicians, you know, dispensing medications, remote verification of pharmacists that sit at home and, you know, do a pharmacy verification process because all this technology is coming along. And that this is a digital health thing is that, you know, for patients, they can either go to a, a business, I'm going to call it a dollar general model where you have just technicians around the top 100 and such, and that they can just get their medications, antibiotics, you know, maybe certain controlled substances, you know, things that have to be mixed up, their vaccinations, testing, whatever is there. And you just leave and everything else is just going to be remotely delivered. You know, is it going to be drones or going to be another thing? Like, who knows? But I expect that kind of logistical uh, chain to actually really have a huge uptake. Um, so the digitalization of the pharmacy is that we will go towards like a click and mortar kind of business. Like you go to a place if you need it, but ideally a lot of these services can be offered virtually or done with not a lot of human touch points involved with it. At least not you getting your car and going through a driveway. What does this mean for pharmacists? You know, what does that mean for us providing then value that do, that when we lose our, you know, that front present in a pharmacy, where do we go with that? And then this is where I, you know, start thinking about like, you know, what else is changing in that digital health is changing how we think about care. You know, we've seen different health systems, uh, Oshner, for instance, now using pharmacists to, to do remote patient monitoring, which is basically patients aren't even coming in. They're just getting data outpatient side about blood pressure. And the pharmacists are basically checking on patients, checking on their medications and making adjustments to therapy to make sure they hit their, hit their target uh, blood pressure goal. Um, we'll see the diabetes. We're going to see it with like cholesterol and such like that, because those tests can even be done the patient home and shared as well. So we're seeing like a push for different services we engage upon. At the end of the day, the biggest problem is going to be money. It's going to be the payers. We know that we need a pharmacist to verify, set up in our laws, and that's our value set right now. To have someone say, well, let's pay for this service for pharmacists to provide. Well, what's the value proposition there? And this is my biggest headache right now. What I'm really trying to get people to really think about is that we don't need more research saying that we can provide clinical value. We've done that. We've done that for 30 plus years. We can help with heart failure. We can help with all these chronic conditions. Like That's fine. I don't need to hear... Pharmacist does X and drops blood pressure. Pharmacist does X and drops A1C. Like, no, nah, that's that's a no-brainer. How many man hours does it deal with? Do, how many FTEs do we need to deal with? How many patients can you deal with in that amount of time that actually goes towards a point where you get that outcome and a payer looks at it and says, it is worth paying a pharmacist to do those services. We have clinical research that shows clinical value. We have very little good research that shows a financial incentive for a payer to come on board and say, it is worth paying you for this. And I'm not even going to talk about medication therapy management. I'm thinking like, you know, MTM 2.0 or beyond that. One of the biggest issues has been just a time sink to do all this work. It doesn't compare to a PA or NPR and stuff like that. But if all this other technology comes to fruition that I've talked about, does this put pharmacists in a situation where we should be in charge of the medication delivered process in terms of not even like if we're going to give up verification and dispensing, do we subsume just the whole medication journey instead and how that all reacts and such? And the reason I make that argument is that most providers don't want to deal with like, oh, patient's blood pressure was this this day and this is a trend and such. They don't like they that's not going to be their job. They don't want to take it on. Nursing doesn't have a skill set for it. So... 
do NPs, PAs, or us duke it out for that? And I would probably say, I think the PAs and NPs will probably be pushed towards more of the diagnostic of uh, certain acuity conditions. And then in terms of guiding care, that'll leave us up for it. But again, we have to show that this financially makes sense. Is this something that is worth paying us for? Uh, under a current fee-for-service model, I'm not sure if that would be carved out. Is this an argument for alternative you know, care plans, um, you know, VBC models? You know, we're still struggling over that. But this is where... I would say in this decade, we have to put our foot in the ground. We have to show the stuff that we have to, that we can do it and we can do it well and it pays well if we want to have that kind of job opportunity in the future. That's kind of when I talk about pharmacy in terms of like, you know, digital health, that's the implications I'm looking at. You know, you just went over a lot of things about, you know, how this is going to be affecting the pharmacy business. And, you know, if pharmacists who are, you know, potentially going to be affected by this because, you know, the digitalization is going to affect the way the pharmacy business is and they're working in the pharmacy business. Like, do you have any advice for them about, like, how can they kind of get more involved and active in this entire process and have, like, a say at the table? So I don't think it's, like, the goal is to become a digital health pharmacist. Like, I, I would say digital health, by and large, eventually just becomes healthcare. At some point, all this technology just, you know, rechanges how we think about healthcare in the future. Um, and we've done that through millennia, how you regard, like, in, even our names, having going from, uh, you know, druggist, chemist, uh, apothecary, pharmacist, like, we have evolved to fit the situations in terms of where it goes, whether it was compounding medications, in, you know, years past towards and pharmaceutical products coming directly to a pharmacy that we then dispense. Um, and I, I think we've seen it with other health professions as well. So I think the question that we have to think about, though, is what does that mean? Like, where do we exist? And how do we function? Uh, what is a pharmacist without their medications? that they dispense. Are they still a pharmacist? I'm not sure. But I think understanding, you know, where healthcare is going is going to be very valuable to then, you know, strategize in terms of like where we where we fit. So in terms of like your question, you know, what do you do? I I would expect probably within this decade, as we start seeing certain parts of the job market get hammered and losing function, um, either due to using technology or automation, or if we get to a point where pharmacy verification can be automated, that's going to be a big uh, game changer there. I suppose we lose about 20, 30% of jobs out there. We'll probably go through something called like the great retraining for pharmacists, which is trying to identify what roles are available that pay and how to go into them. And that's why I make that argument. We need to f- make those roles available sooner than as possible that are worth paying for to have pharmacists move into those jobs because otherwise there will, will be a, you know oversupply because the value set is not there. Um, so I would say prepare for a retraining, depending on where you're at in your career. That's going to be one thing that comes up. Understanding, you know, how healthcare is changing is going to be key because that's going to be the justification for why pharmacists will be moved out traditional roles and towards the other ones, because our hands will be forced because of the money and different ways that care will be delivered at the end of the day. I would say also then, is there an opportunity then to figure out where you can take your knowledge and apply in different areas? I think that's the trouble. You know, people always say, you know, automation for every job it removes, there's like 10 jobs it makes. I, I don't know that's true. I don't know. I think that's a little big hype talk. Is that is that going to necessarily be very true? I'm not sure. Or does it create different professions out of it? And I think it's the concept that we had to consider, you know, as things get automated, where do we, the pharmacists still have to have the human touch points at the end of the day? And where is it going to be needed? So I would tell anyone right now that is in pharmacy, and it's going to retire at least within the next 30 years. Yeah, you're going to be hit with more levels of technology that are going to change how practice is occurring. You're going to have to be agile in terms of how you maintain relevance in the job market. You're going to have to read a lot. You're going to have to engage with other peers to figure out, you know, what's going on. You have to look at your business that you currently work at and decide, you know, what are they moving? What are they considering with how to use you? 
I think a level of apathy that I show up into a nine to five job and I walk out and that job will always be there is going to be a nail in your coffin. That's what I definitely would say. So most people don't want to hear that. I, I know that that's a really scary conundrum. Um, thinking that you spent all this money to go to school, that you expect to make a certain level of income coming out of it, and that you would have the job for the rest of your life. I, it's not there. It is not. So I think the concept and the expectation that the market for pharmacists is going to be very labile in the near future, we need to say, we need to talk about that. And it's not just like, oh, I don't like working this job because it's stressful. No, it's how do you justify actually existing as that professional? in a changing healthcare dynamic that will be coming. Yeah, you know, thanks for being honest and just sharing, you know, that and all of everything else you've shared on the episode. If anyone had any questions about, you know, digital health or even your personal career journey, what's the best way that they can reach you? I'm on social media everywhere. Just reach out to me. You know, if you go to my website, there's a contact form. Hit me up on Twitter. Hit me up on LinkedIn. I'll usually get back and I'm more than willing to talk. I do have YouTube videos for a lot of like, you know, frequently asked questions that have come up. So I will, I might send that to you to say, Hey, look at this first. And then if you want to talk more, like we'll have that conversation. I think the big thing is, you know, going back to your last question is people are like, you know, what other job opportunities are out there for me? Uh, yeah, I'm an educator. And the biggest thing is like, you know, I, I focus on, you know, what pharmaceutical knowledge does a student need to have? And I think some of the stuff I do teach is going to be outdated here soon. I won't lie. And then we have to figure out how to readdress that. But the one thing I do think that is key for any level of education, and this might go back to you know, my background, like enjoying philosophy. I want to be a history and philosophy professor. I, that's what I really want to do, but there's no money in it. <laughs> what ends up happening is I, I really, I truly think that critical thinking skills is going to be very valuable. Taking health knowledge and applying it towards healthcare is going to be key. And I think it comes back from our earlier discussion. You know, people want to make apps out of complete BS because they have the technical knowledge. They could make something, but does it have any value set to it or does it clinically mean anything? Who's going to be the intermediaries to solve that? Until, you know, we have friends that are doing those kind of jobs right now. And I think this is where it comes down to is, is there a retraining level that's expected to do those types of things? Is there a certain different level of education that has to occur for you to be intermediary in a company that wants to engage in tech services with healthcare knowledge at the end of the day? Uh, or maybe just delivering that, you know, is, does this turn into we have a point where we have digital health coaches that help people deal with this technology based on that facet. So, yeah, there's a lot of different things that I could say that one way or another. If you talk to me, and you're trying to figure out what to do. I'm probably going to throw back at you, like, what skill sets do you have kind of right now? What do you want to consider doing? What do you need to get there? How much time are you willing to invest in yourself to get there? I think that's the biggest thing that will stand out to me. Awesome. So yeah, I'll be putting a link to some of your methods of contact into the show notes for anybody who's interested in reaching out, but you know, to be respectful of your time. Thank you so much for, you know, being on the podcast and finally us having this conversation <laughs> since we, we haven't had this and, uh, and I've known you for quite a while now. So, so yeah, thanks so much. Thanks, Tony. I appreciate it. Take care. Have a good day. Alright, if you like our show, please share with your friends, or you can help us out by writing a review on Apple Podcasts or any of your other favorite podcasting services. You can also check us out on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn, and you can also reach out to me at Tony at PharmacyITME.com. If you want to network, you can check out the Pharmacist Slack group at PharmacistConnect.com, which is P-H-A-R-M-A-C-I-S-T-S-C-O-N-N-E-C-T.com. There's different topic channels, including informatics, and I've met some great colleagues on there, and I look forward to connecting with you as well. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode of Pharmacy IT and me. And remember, technology is the tool, patient care is the goal.